Welcome back to Behind the Confidence Smile. I am your host, Bianca Cotton. I am back because conversation with Ramona was just too good to leave it where it was. And we are going to be discussing the strong black woman syndrome. The reason why, because in part one, Ramona was talking about how she felt she needed to maintain uh, a certain status, a certain look, because she should have it all together as a black woman, and how that impacted her health journey, her relationship with friends, how she showed up at work, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you thank for you. even talking about it <laughs> in part one. We're going to dig into it now. So you um, were in the midst of having your diagnoses mm-hmm. and scheduling your surgery and your insurance changing at work. And mm-hmm. you like, wait, and in the midst of a divorce. So literally life is life in. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Hard. <Full> speed, yes. <laughs> and you're like, but I should be able to mm-hmm. handle this. Mm-hmm. I should be able to maintain this. Yes. Tell, tell me more about that and, and where that stems from for you. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, you know, maybe it stems from childhood wanting to be, you know, the best student in the classroom. I don't, I don't know, but I, I felt like I had to keep up this facade that I had everything together um, because in, in my mind, vulnerability was your weak. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability is that you're not a leader. And in many spaces where I was in life at that time, I was recognized as a leader. And so to show up um, differently, I thought would be damaging. And, and not in an egotistical type of way, but just in like I was modeling for other folks, right? I had young women looking at looking up to me as a, you know, professional. I had young women um, coming to my home from the kids' school, you know, who looked up to me, oh, Miss Ramona, oh, you know, we love you. Can we get some honey buns, you know, and all that type of stuff. So I felt <laughs> like it, I felt like I, I had to maintain that just to, not only for self, but for those who were somewhat dependent on me. And I know that sounds so narcissistic, but um, yeah, well, that's we, my truth. <laughs> it's your truth, and we're going to unpack your truth, mm-hmm. right? Uh, as far as being a black woman, why do we feel like we have to maintain a level of perfectionism mm-hmm. uh, in order to feel as though we're being strong and lifting up others versus showing up as your authentic self? Mm-hmm. Like, this is real life. Yeah. I mean, but think about what we see in the media coming up as, you know, young black girls, whether it's all my life I had to fight. Mm. You know, it, it's always that is our model of you know, who has it together. I know I had mentioned the Huxtables before, right? right? We had Claire Huxtable. She was a mom. How many kids? They had? they had a whole bunch of kids. Right. You know, but yet she was a lawyer. Had yet a great career. Great marriage. And cook, right? And so those were like the prototypes of like, okay, we can't, we got to be strong because that damsel in, in distress never looked like us. Mm. You know, that, that prince who came in on that shining horse or whatever didn't come to rescue folks like us. So for me, I just kind of created this prototype, this model that I aspired to, you know, as a child and as an adult, you know, it continued. And I think that played into this strong black woman. I can I can do it all. I can save everybody. I can. No, you can't. So when did you realize you couldn't save everybody? Do I know it now? Probably not. (laughs) Mm. I think it's a daily, you know, struggle and and remembrance. Um, Because, again, it's just so innate. 
Uh, but now I think in this space that I'm able to be more truthful and, and, and transparent and because um, it's freeing, you know, to remember that I am a human. I'm not a robot. Yeah, true. And, you know, when you're on the airport or in the airplane, they say you got to put your mask That's on awesome. before you put on someone else's, you know, but I have to be reminded because I've, I go into that mode just automatically. So I'm still a student. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, making sure that I touch my sisters, you know, my, my network, my girlfriends, like we check on each other and, and not because something has happened, but just those daily, hey, let me send you a text message to uplift you. Let me send you something that's going to make you laugh. Right. Let me send you a song from when we was in high school, you know, mm-hmm. to take you back then. But um, that's what I kind of do to kind of not only help myself, but as you know, a reminder to my circle as well, too. Definitely. Yeah. I want to go back to. When you talked about your eight-year-old was helping you uh, with the bulbs and training it out for you. Mm-hmm. In that moment, how did you feel? Because you talked about struggling with vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What did that do for you? Yeah, I mean, I felt loved. That was mm-hmm. maybe because I didn't grow up with my daddy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Another I episode. My, my <laughs> but no, I, I felt I felt safe. I felt safe because, again, I was having a moment. It could have been like an anxiety moment, but I'm, I can't do this, you know. And I'm still kind of the same way with him now that he's much older. He's 17, about to leave the house. But, like, if I see a mouse, I'm like, I can't do this. And I'm like, it's just a mouse, Ramona. But, mm. yeah, he's still my rock. So, thank God that, yeah, I have him and his siblings. But I felt safe in that moment. Right. And, uh, yeah, I give thanks, you know, that yeah. I have them and others. For those type of moments. <laughs> mm. I'm curious to know that now that you've um, been through the journey of the double mastectomy mm-hmm. and recovering, mm-hmm. how did this impact you showing up as a leader mm. after this experience? So, yeah, that's a great question. So the first time around, I went back to work too quick mm-hmm. because work was an escape for me. And so um, it allowed me not to deal with, you know, the cancer piece. Um, It allowed me to keep making more money so that I kept food in the refrigerator, right? So that the uh, lights weren't getting cut off or the gas, whatever we used to get cut off. Um, So that's what I did. And so I excelled. I was a beast, you know, so I kept getting promoted, you know, because, again, I don't know what was driving me. Was it the cancer that was driving me? Was it? We ain't going to go through this again with no food in the refrigerator. Um, but I showed up well. You know, when I crossed the threshold at work, I left all that BS, all that fear and all that. I can't squeeze my bulbs behind me. And I showed up and showed out. And so from that perspective, I don't think anyone would have ever known. They, you know, they were like, oh, Ramona, she's a go-getter because that's how it manifested in that space. Um, and actually, too, when the cancer um, came back, I continued that same model. And so it makes me think now, like, had I had slowed down and taken time for my body to heal, um, you know, would I have had a recurrence? Um, Because I I do believe that a lot of the conditions that we're talking about or that we're seeing nowadays in the world, cancer, heart disease, COVID, so much of it is driven by stress and our body's inflammatory response. So, you know, had I really use that time off of work the first time around to just heal would I have you know avoided a a recurrence so who knows right but it's just something that I I keep in mind now when I'm out there in beast mode like oh I'm gonna go sit yourself down 
Because mm-hmm. again, you can't do it all. You can't save the world. You got to put your mask on first. Right. Um, but again, that strong black woman, because everybody's coming to you for answers and questions, you know, at work and in other spaces, you know, giving, giving you they stuff. You know, and I got to check that too. Like, I don't want your problem. That's your job. You can, I'll recommend you do this, but you know what? You keep that over there. I don't need to take on yours and mine. Because right. again, it goes back to the strong black, black woman, woman piece as well, too. And carrying mm-hmm. other people's bags. Mm-hmm. There you go. So when you recognize you carrying someone's bag, like, what is your immediate thought? <laughs> it depends. So nowadays, I'm like, here, take that right back. Um, sometimes I'll try to coach the person through whatever to help them. Um, because I, I don't know, I feel like I have this responsibility to help. Um, but yeah, I, I don't take their plate or their bag away from them. Like, no, you know, you can put that little strap on your person and I'll be cute, but <laughs> you, you keep that over there. Uh, but again, it's a daily reminder because yes. on automatically I'm like, oh yeah, I can help you. Come on over here. No, right. let me give you tools for you to help yourself and let me keep doing what I'm supposed to do. Delegating. Yeah. So what does rest look like for you as a black woman? Oh, that's a good question. Rest for me, um, I guess it's time with my kids, um, which is usually shuffling them around. Um, being that Uber. Yeah, being an Uber, <laughs> even though they now drive. I don't know why I'm still an Uber. Or, you know, even just like sitting down and, and watching TV, going to a sports game or something. Um, because even too, like I, I really give thanks for my kids because how I found out the cancer had returned, that was another fluke mm-hmm. that was driven by my um, youngest daughter. We were in bed together and she was flipping and flopping and twerking or doing something because <laughs> she's a twerk monster. But um, <laughs> she dropped down on the bed and she elbowed me and she chipped my front tooth. And, uh, you know, I, I love Martin. I know every episode of Martin. I'm like, oh, man, you know, I'm jacked up my teeth. And I was like, how am I find y'all a new daddy if I ain't got no teeth? Right. Just laughing, making a joke out of it, but really just knocked it out. And so I went to my dentist um, who was fitting me for an implant and he had this fancy like scan machine. And uh, he noticed something in my jaw as he was looking at the bone where the, the implant would go. And him knowing my prior cancer history, he was like, yeah, go back to your doctor, go back to your oncologist. And that's how I found out that my cancer had metastasized in my jaw because my daughter knocked out my front tooth. Wow. So <laughs> what if that had not have happened, right? So again, me always just giving thanks to, you know, for everything, but definitely giving thanks to my kids and in this space because, yeah, this is so ridiculous that it could be comical. Right. You know? So what happens now? This is part two. <laughs> With the oncologist. Yeah. So went back and we talked about different treatment plans and talked about chemo again. And, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm a pharmacist. I understand, you know, how drugs work and how they help to eradicate cancer cells and stuff. Um, but as we were going through my regimen, I was looking at the cycle of, okay, you know, a, re- a regimen this week, another one two weeks then. And, you know, I'm like, hmm, time off of work. Okay. Can't go back to that. And work is your escape. Right. It's my escape, but I can't go back to being broke again either, right? Right. Because remember, my benefits had changed, disability package wasn't all that great. I'm living way too close to my means. Um, So I I did two rounds of chemo, and I was like, you know what? I'm done. So I went to my oncologist. I was like, I can't do this. And of course, he's like, you know, what the hell is your problem? Like, Mm -hmm. you should know better. And I'm like, yeah, I I just can't. And so um, instead of talking about some other options, because it's, you know, definitely chemo is the core of treatment for cancer, but there are other things or combination therapies that you can do to lessen the impact of chemo. And so, but I feel like when I said no, it changed the level of our relationship 
as doctor and, and patient, um, and he just basically threw his hands up from my perspective. That's what my story is, my version. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for a couple of months, I was just not having any therapy. Um, and I was up late one night just Googling cancer something, and I got a notification about a clinical trial. That was enrolling women with metastatic breast cancer by a a pharma company who was, you know, testing out one of their new drugs. And I called, you know, the the number that was on the the advertisement. They didn't have any locations in Chicago, but they had one in New Orleans. So I was like, oh, I tell myself (laughs) down to New Orleans to meet with the research coordinators to see if I met the criteria for the study. I did. And I'm like, okay, brought that back to my doctor uh, here in Chicago. And said, hey, there's a study that I qualify for that I want to do. And it wasn't chemotherapy. It was still an infusion, but it was a different type of modality of of treatment or of drug um, that was very interesting. So I approached him about it, and he's like, oh, okay. And then in that moment, I asked him, I was like, you know, I go to this world-renowned, nationally recognized cancer institution. Why haven't you ever asked me about clinical trials? And I respect him as, you know, the white male that he is. He said, yeah, my black patients don't do trials. So, yeah, I just didn't ask Mm. you. So, again, you know. The bias. The bias. And so when I talk about, you know, having your power stripped away in these processes, you know, there are really, there are gatekeepers who may have bias. And, again, we all have bias. We all suffer from it, right? That's just how society teaches us how to navigate in different spaces. But the fact that. He didn't ask you. mm -hmm. Like. Just lumped me into all oh, my black patients don't do clinical trials, mm. and we we talking about a large institution here in the city, and this wow. is what you know. Okay, fine. Um, so I, you know, I enrolled in that study, and um, I've since done two more clinical trials, and you know, I was actually given an expiration date when it came to this cancer um, by him, who's he's no longer my primary oncologist, but I've that expiration date was almost three years ago. And I'm still here. So who knows if it was because I found that clinical trial? Who knows if it was the the power of prayer because I've been doing that? Who knows if it's the kettle one because I've been doing it? (laughs) (laughs) You have all your modalities. Mm, Right. Who knows if it was my plenty of fish escapades because, you know, (laughs) I was out there trying to show off these new boobs, you know. But, um, yeah, so so I'm I'm thankful for all the experiences, even the bad ones, because, again, it's given me – an, a deeper understanding as to what the issues are for women that look like us, no matter whether they're dealing with breast cancer or something else, but to use my voice to kind of remove those barriers for them and change the story that, you know, of how women deal with, um, you know, health conditions, how they deal in healthcare, um, mm-hmm. and how they deal with breast cancer. So. And changing the face changing that the face. is not a older white woman that mm-hmm. gets breast cancer. With the cancer. pink ribbon. No. With the pink ribbon. And the pink it could cats. be you. It could be you. Right. And it is us. And and that's the thing, because if you think about, um, again, going back to numbers, I always look at the epidemiology of like, what is the incidence or the prevalence of uh, breast cancer? And even here in Chicago alone, you know, white women get diagnosed with breast cancer way more than black women and Latino women or Latinas. Makes sense because they're a larger chunk of the population. Um, but if we look at the morbidity and mortality, the, the death around cancer, that's when you see those numbers go way up for us, right? way up for Latinas. And it's like, okay, well, why? Because if we're only a small percentage of those who are getting diagnosed, why are we dying? Right. And so often when I hear um, public health specialists talk about that uh, specific, you know, disparity that we see, they confer so much blame to the community, to the women, 
Mm. Oh, they don't go to the doctor. Oh, they don't care about their bodies. And maybe some of that is true because it's, it's systemic. But then you have issues like mine where you're being denied opportunities for care, right? Or you're having to call multiple times to get yeah. care. So they're or get a yeah. appointment, period. Mm-hmm. So if we're really looking for a true solutions to kind of change the disparity of what we see there, we can't make the blame go to one piece of it. It's, it's so not fair. Um, and so that's kind of the, the passion and, and purpose that drives me now in my profession. Right. And that was kind of like the catalyst of me moving from retail pharmacy into the pharma Definitely. industry. Um, because, you know, clinical trials does not have to be, you know, the, the option of last resort. I'm not a fan of going out there and say everybody needs to be in a, a, a clinical trial. I know research has a complicated history in our community Definitely. because our bodies were taken advantage of in many different, um, you know, instances. But I do know that a piece of why I'm sitting here today is because I went down that path. Yeah. And yeah. we need people who are trusted voices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh that folks can consult with yeah. um, and talk about the barriers mm-hmm. to getting access to health care, yeah. even down to I don't have any more PTO days left. Yeah. Like what you were talking about. Yeah. And what is your relationship like with your supervisor? Are you are you able to be open and say, you know what, I'm going through something right now mm-hmm. and I really need to take care of yeah i mean because that's a hard conversation to have and that's really you know hopefully this conversation too was one that folks walk away with some type of empowerment some type of new pearl or nugget they can take away because that's what i want to do is just give people the information to empower them to make the best decisions for them right i'm not telling you to do everything i did please don't go out there and drink kettle wine the way i did <laughs> don't go out there and play plenty of fish the way i did but, you know, again, if I could share any element of my story that resonates or connects with a woman that she then, you know, can take charge or make a better decision for her or if she's a caregiver to someone else. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, what I'm hoping that folks get from this conversation. Yeah. Or encourage a sister or a friend who's mm-hmm. been complaining about being in pain or mm-hmm. discovered a lump and like, oh, you know, it it disappears. Mm-hmm. Like what you said mm-hmm. when you were having your cycle, it just that was just a part of your body mm-hmm. until you realize mm, there's something different about this one. Yeah. Yeah. It's painful. Yeah. It's impacting my ability mm-hmm. to show up well. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell women. Just know your body. Know what's normal and know what's not. You know, I don't care if it's a vaginal discharge. I don't care if it's, you know, extra sweat coming. If that ain't your norm. Right. Get it checked out. Yeah, you deserve to have somebody look at it and, and you know, yeah, help you through that process. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what would you tell the, what year was this, 2013, 2014? Mm-hmm. Say, yeah. What would you tell the 2013 Ramona? To be vulnerable and ask for help. You don't have to do it alone. Yeah. It would have saved me a lot of headache. Yeah. I mean, even to the point of like crying, I, I, I think it took me probably six months to cry about having cancer. Mm-hmm. So I'm a G. I don't cry. Right. You, know? you a thug. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and a piece. You know. Okay, that's so crazy. So I, I was telling a girlfriend this recently. So with all this reconstructive surgery, all these um, you know new boobs I got. So I was a, a negative A cup because I was an A cup. Then I breastfed three kids that became negative. Um, and so my reconstructive surgeon, when we were talking about implants, he was like, yeah, you can get this one over here or this one. I was like, oh, I like this one. It's called Gummy Bear. I'm going to get that one. And I was like, okay, I want to wake up and be Dolly Parton, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
And he was like, I'm going to get you close to I'm going to get you close. So then I remember waking up after surgery once they finally put the implants in. And I was like, you, you not, see me right now. I'm not. I'm nowhere near Dolly Parton. Girl, if I didn't cuss that man out, and I think that was probably the first time I cried because I was disappointed. <laughs> In the outcome. Yes, but I, um, it, it, a couple of weeks later, I went to go get a bra from Victoria's Secret, and they were like, yeah, you know, you're a 36D. I was like, where do you see a D at? I don't see no D. But then I learned about, oh, how you really measure. I, yeah. <laughs> But I did apologize to the dude. I was like, you know, because I was like, this looks like some A cups, you know. But I'm like, yeah, I'm wearing a 36D bra. Let me call this surgeon back. Dr. Kim, I'm sorry. I apologize. I cussed you out. Wow. <laughs> Ramona, you are hilarious. How how do you utilize your lived experience in your, in your nine to five? Yeah. So uh, right now, so I still work for a pharma company. And I oversee um, some elements of health equity, mm. uh, but really tying that to uh, the pipeline of drugs that we're developing in, in many different spaces where it disproportionately impacts people of color, people that look like us. And so being able to tie, you know, there's this need for treatment and prevention for these conditions in these populations um, to make sure that we're changing the way that we operate as a pharma company. So whether it's, you know, pursuing a clinical trial or putting a study location in a certain community um, or in a community hospital versus a large institution, uh, being able to provide resources for community health workers and educators because we know that that has been a big driver for yeah. spreading awareness and education in our communities um, because there's a lot of mistrust, but there's a reason why mm -hmm. there's a valid reason you know my story alone yes i don't trust y'all you know but we can get beyond this if we're willing to partner if we're willing to have deference as large companies as large institutions when it comes to you know supporting the communities we've got to understand what the need is and so that requires going in and listening before right. you say hey i got the, the cure i got the remedy here you go community pass you on the head good luck you know we got to go on we got to listen we got to use the data to kind of help us identify where the areas are um, and then co-create. And so COVID was a huge opportunity for that. And at my former employer, I was part of some of the vaccine trials mm -hmm. to kind of get that out there um, into our communities that were disproportionately impacted by death right. due to COVID. So that spilled over into my current role where, again, I'm just trying to give voice to the patients, give voice to communities um, so that we don't die. Right. So that we don't have to get that Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's 2022, yeah. right? That's the year? Yeah. And like whether it's even. And like, we live in the United States. We live in the United States. So even HIV, where I started, I, f I still feel like that's still being regarded as a gay male, white mm -hmm. male disease. And there are black women dying disproportionately. You know, there are women in general dying because we've labeled it as such that we're missing a whole diaspora of other patients who are HIV positive. Are we giving them the resources they need to live their life great? Right. You know, it's and to survive their illness because people aren't dying from HIV anymore. But guess what? They are in our communities. Right. You know, and, and uh, on the South Side, South Shore, Inglewood, we still dying from HIV. We're dying from AIDS defining illness. And we have been so far removed from that as, you know, a country, I thought. But our communities are still suffering so where do we have that equity and that parity of resources whether it's medicines or you know access to doctors or whatever it is um just you know kind of helping to find the solutions there because 
It shouldn't be in 2022, but it, it still is. But it still is. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, Ramona, <laughs> you have dropped the gems. <laughs> and I'm taking this conversation way too many ways, so I'm so sorry. Uh, it's like reading a, a textbook slash a novel and a comic all at the same time. <laughs> and I thank you for everything that you have shared thank you, from your story and just holding space today for so many people. And I know this will impact uh, and help other folks advocate if they got tired of advocating for themselves to be re-energized to do so. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for providing this platform for the community, you know, so that we can come here and learn because, you know, your other guests, your guests are, are powerful. And the more that we can share our stories, share our narrative and, and show how that's impacting the world. I mean, the better we can be. So thank you. My pleasure. All right, you all. Until next time, stay tuned.